Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. In the morning, the emissary mounted his horse and rode west. He left the towers and the markets behind him, trading cramped streets and oppressive opulence for the world outside the city walls. He passed beneath the gate's barbed portcullis, crossed the moat, and passed the morning amid the varied towns that composed the empire. The people noted the insignias upon his coat and nodded as he rode past. Children and dogs ran along beside him till he passed beyond their meager worlds as well. By afternoon, wide fields of cultivated crops opened up around him, stretching to the horizon. Mines and logging operations popped the hills. By dusk, he arrived at those ragged flags that marked the empire's edge and gazed out on a darkening world, lawless and unconquered, home to peoples alien in language and thought. All manner of death and liberation seemed to teem and writhe within the gloaming. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I assumed that that reading was supposed to evoke a certain feeling. Now, what was that you were going for? I wanted to evoke the feeling of, of the frontier, of traveling from the, the center of, uh, of a civilization to the, uh, the outer boundaries of it. Now, specifically, we talked about the literary style of J.M. Kutzi, who mm-hmm. wrote the book Waiting for the Barbarians, which we've both read, right? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite books. And uh, I was thinking about doing a quote from it to kick this off, but I thought, well, well, I don't know, just kind of cobble something together that that uh, invokes uh, waiting for the barbarians and serves our purpose directly. So this is like synthetic Coetzee by you. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, you know, and I, I Coetzee's one of those guys I dig enough. There's probably a little bit of synthetic Coetzee in a lot of things I write. Uh, well, definitely, uh, definitely an influential writer. Well, you could do worse than to have that. But of course, today, that means we're going to be talking about frontiers. And I guess we should just explain why this idea came up. So mm-hmm. just recently, Robert Christian and I went to the C2E2 conference in Chicago. That's and right. we were talking about the 1893 Chicago World's Fair, the world's Columbian Exposition. And one of the topics that I was researching uh, that we didn't end up incorporating into our presentation there was this presentation that was delivered in, in Chicago in the 1890s, usually reported as being delivered during the World's Fair in 1893 by the uh, historian, the American historian Frederick Jackson Turner, and it's known as the Frontier Thesis. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the essay itself is the significance of the frontier in American history. And that got us thinking about the idea of frontiers, what, what a frontier means, what it represents, uh, what kind of flaws are there in the idea of a frontier. And so that's what we wanted to explore today. Eventually, we will get to that essay by uh, Turner and talk about its its meaning, its influence, and some criticisms of it. But we also wanted to explore more generally the idea of the frontier, especially also how it fits into what's known as world systems theory. Yeah, we wanted to go deeper than just sort of the the basic idea of frontier. I feel like uh, earlier generations, you had Western movies and Western fiction, and that was kind of the go-to model. Mm -hmm. And certainly all that stuff's still around, but I, I think more and more younger people probably have that Game of Thrones vision, right? Right. There's the wall. That's the frontier. On one side, barbarians and white walkers. On this side, uh, 
you know, some semblance of order. Yeah, I think the frontier is often considered, well, in, in the, in the more metaphorical reading, in one very straightforward literal reading, mm-hmm. you could just say it's the, it's the agreed upon boundary of a civilization. Right. Uh, but in the more metaphorical reading, you could say, well, it is where the idea of civilization ends. It's mm-hmm. where the laws cease to apply. Right. Yeah, there is um, there's a quote here that that I had to pull out from uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Mm-hmm. He says, "Here beyond men's judgments, all covenants were brittle," <laughs> which, uh, which which is telling, and that's certainly uh, a work of a frontier chaos uh, for you. Yeah, and Blood Meridian, I think, very well captures a lot of the popular idea of the frontier and mm-hmm. that it's a place where there are few checks on people's will to power mm-hmm. and there is little in the way of um, you know moral civilization. I mean, part of, part of what you might say there is that that's just Cormac McCarthy's influence coming through. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a place of, of betrayal, of individualism, of, of struggle for power, of violence violence. Uh, what else would you say? Well, all of these things, certainly. But but yeah, I, I want to make sure we're also hitting on the, the, the positive aspects, you know, the idea of freedom, liberation, you know, just going off the grid, right? right. Everyone, everyone probably has at some point in their life fantasized about that, right? Right. Like, oh, all these modern technologies. I need, I'm going to, I'm going to move to a cabin. I'm going to have physical books. I'm going to read them and listen to vinyl or something, right? Um, <laughs> And, and that, in a sense, is 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 not that different from the frontier notion. But but what's going on on Twitter? <laughs> well, you, you got to uh, disconnect from all of that, right? That's the you're getting further away from uh, from the the the, uh, the, the center of, of modern digital digital civilization. Now, this is the popular idea of the frontier. The the actual fact of the frontier may be a very different beast than how it's conceived in these both dark and positive romantic visions. Yeah, as always, you can you can point to examples of either, but it's probably going to more or less even out depending on whose side you're on, too, because it's the frontier is uh, is an idea that, of course, has two sides. And you can be an individual that is uh, is born into uh, uh, the the civilization side of frontier or into the, um, uh, the the wild side of frontier. And it's going to be a very different experience. Now, we'll get into all that as we explain. Right. And uh, of course, one of the funny things might be that you could have different perspectives on which side of the frontier is which. Right. Now, the person who's living on the side that has more technology, more economic power, greater wealth, uh, more population density in cities and civic infrastructure, that person probably thinks they live on the civilized side and the other side is wild. But you could very well turn it the other way around and say, you know, here on our side of the frontier, we have simple, well-organized communities that mm-hmm. operate in cooperation and the people on the other side have this kind of technological pandemonium. Yeah, and... Whatever side you're on, you can likely look look across the the boundary and say, "Well, those people have totally the wrong religion." Yeah, I don't know what they're <laughs> thinking. We have the right one. Uh, they should be more like us, right? 
So maybe that frontier needs to be pushed forward a little bit. Yeah. Uh, another thing worth uh, stressing before we move forward is, of course, that frontiers of of one sort or, or another have always existed. Yeah. So the the Wild West was not the first frontier. Uh, no more than like uh, the frontier of the Roman Empire was the first frontier. Like it, it, it's as long as you've had civilizations uh, and human communities, you've had these boundary points. Yeah. And one of the things to keep in mind is that be, a lot of people think of the frontier and they only think of the American frontier. You can barely come up with another one, but I'm mm-hmm. glad you mentioned the Roman frontier. Mm-hmm. That was one situation where you had a technologically advanced civilization that had an empire and they had the boundaries of the empire and they were constantly trying to push the boundaries and move them around, trying to conquer new peoples, conquer new lands, bring in more resources. And so they, they very much had a frontier that is in a lot of ways analogous to the American Western frontier. Yeah. They all, but you can also think about the sort of more contemporary frontiers to the American Western frontier, uh, like you might have seen in Australia or mm-hmm. in South Africa or in other places that where, where you had the remnants of European imperialism pushing into lands that were already occupied by other people. Right. And then, of course, nowadays with uh, with travel, um, such as it is, uh, a frontier is not always going to be as physical a space, you know? Yeah. Like you, you to 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 disappear into uh, a realm beyond uh, the domain of empire uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you just uh, keep traveling west on right. foot. You can hop on a plane and go somewhere else. Uh-huh. And uh, and that factors into, into all this as well. So earlier I mentioned that, Robert, you wanted to talk about the idea of frontiers in light of what's known as world systems theory. Yeah. So uh, w- what's the deal with this? Explain this concept to me. Okay, so... World system theory is a, an economically charged uh, macro sociological attempt to understand the movements of history. You know, okay. so, so no biggie. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I. This is the kind of thing that is always very interesting and always bound to be, in some sense, wrong. Right. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Critics uh, of, of this say will often say, "Oh, well, this is too economic, or it's too reductionist." I mean, anytime you try and, and create a, a broad theory or model for human behavior, human culture, uh, it's not going to fit perfectly. Right. What I, what you might call world totalizing theories. Yeah. Or maybe that's not the best best way to put it. The West way to put it. Uh, but the theories that try to explain how everything in some domain of knowledge works. Mm-hmm. Usually the, those kind of overreach and overgeneralize. But at the same time, they can have very interesting insights. So so what does world systems theory say about explaining movements in world history? Well, I turn to some of the writings of uh, DePaul University socio-anthropologist Thomas D. Hall uh, for some uh, additional info here. Okay. Uh, he has a 2001 um, uh a paper that came out, World Systems, Frontiers, and Ethnogenesis, Incorporation, and Resistance to State Expansion. Okay, that's a lot of abstract nouns. All right. Well, let's boil it all down. So setting aside uh, actual nation states, um, world systems theory breaks down the, the world to three basic components. Okay. You have uh, the core the periphery and the semi-periphery. Okay. So the core is the center of production and specialization, and it's made up of strong states. Okay, so production and specialization means that this is your economic center. This is where your your goods and services mainly come from. Right. Uh, it's where there's, like, manufacturing maybe, but also specialization would mean it's where people 
have more specialized job titles. So instead of being somebody who operates a homestead and does everything, you might be somebody who has a very, very specific job that you're very good at that can be utilized by uh, or you know, can be made use of by this economic system to produce more and more goods. Right. And it, it, it basically lines up with our, our intro uh, fiction about the guy riding out from the center of empire. Yeah. But again, this is, this is something that, that crosses uh, s- s- traditional state boundaries. Okay. So from this uh, point of view, like the core would incorporate uh, various nations. So you, for instance, you look at a world map that's using world systems theory and uh, the U.S. and Canada are going to be one, and they're going to be uh, locked in with other Western uh, nations. So it's less observant of things like national boundaries and more observant of centers of economic production and trade, maybe. They're less hip to the idea of nations and boundaries, and they're just trying to figure out how the system works. Okay, so if they're just watching stuff flow around, Mm -hmm. this might be the system they'd land upon. Right, so that's the core. The uh, periphery specializes in raw materials, and this is composed of weak states, and the semi-periphery is the uh, intermediate area. Okay, so you might think of this as the core, the, the group we just talked about, sort of exploiting the resources of these other of the periphery states, and then the semi-periphery states are somewhere in between. Right. So Hall and others have also added additional rules to this. Uh, World systems, they argue, date back to at least Neolithic times. Core periphery structures are a major locus point of social change, uh, and all of the systems evolve and have several dynamic cycles involved in them. Okay, but if we said that this is less uh, observant of national boundaries and is thinking more about economics, how do frontiers play into it? All right, well, this is where frontiers come into play. So various dynamic cycles dictate the expansion and contraction of world systems, according to Hall. These systems pulsate, core states rise and fall, and there's a typical process, typical but not universal, in which a semi-peripheral marcher state displaces or conquests after a dominant core state. Okay, so um, you've got up-and-comers. Yeah, yeah, so we see this cycle over time of like uh, you know, the Dutch are in power, then the British are in power, the U.S. are in power, uh, you know, the the, the, the colonial flow of, 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 re- of modern history. And I want to quote Hall here. He says, thinking of a frontier as a membrane is helpful. From a global perspective, a frontier is relatively narrow and sharp. But from nearby, it is a broad zone with considerable internal, spatial, and temporal differentiation. Its permeability varies with the direction of flow and the things moving through it, types of goods, groups, and individuals. A frontier is the result of an often long, complex, and highly political process of negotiation. Okay, I, I think that's a good point to make, because when you think of a boundary line, you think of a line, a line is something of, what, infinitely small width, mm-hmm. uh, it, ideally, in, in geometrical terms. But that's not really what a frontier is. A frontier is more of a zone. Yeah. Uh, it's an intermediate state between different between different areas where different principles apply. And in this zone, you have a, a kind of, uh, well, for one thing, he says it's permeable, so things move back and forth mm-hmm. between it. But you also have a mingling of the application of different principles. It might be a place where, in some sense, the wild principles apply. In some other sense, the civilization principles apply. Or the, the principles of different peoples might mix. 
Yeah, and again, it's just it's not that um, Game of Thrones idea of the wall and just two distinct things on either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we we see this more and more, I think, uh, in, in, with contemporary events as. Uh, Powers try to see how a border wall between the U.S. and Mexico would work, right. uh, realizing, well, this is not Game of Thrones. Uh, this is, <laughs> the, a, 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 again, a, a border, a frontier is a membrane. Um, and when you try and apply just a, you know, a wall scenario to it, uh, various problems begin to emerge. Yeah, well, I think it usually comes from an oversimplified understanding of what that border means yeah. and the lack of understanding of how important it is that that border is not actually a physical barrier because, mm-hmm. you know, wildlife moves back and forth, people move back and forth for totally legitimate reasons, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that it, that it, in physical reality, is just a landscape. Yeah. Now, uh, he, he talks a little bit about uh, frontiers in U.S. history uh, and defines them as areas with population densities less than two persons per square mile. And then he also, and he's paraphrasing a couple of uh, other writers here, but he also refers to them as, quote, zones of historical interaction where no one has an enduring monopoly on violence. Hmm. So, uh, you know, very Blood Meridian-esque uh, 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 summation there. But also uh, in keeping with what you might say is the history of political science, because mm-hmm. How do you define a government? What is a government? A government is often defined as the thing that has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence true, in its yeah. own. The, the people who can use violence without anybody stopping them mm-hmm. in an area, that that is the governing body. Yeah, on and, the law side, it's you know it's like, hey, well, violence is kind of our thing. Yeah. Violence is at the tail end of any um, uh, any commandment, any law. Uh-huh. Like the law is, is eventually going to be enforced with violence. Right. At least it has the potential to be if it must be. Right. Uh, but yeah, so here at this border zone, you you see two overlapping areas where, and that doesn't always work so well, because if two different people are claiming to have a monopoly on violence, then neither one actually has a monopoly. Right. Yeah, you have a competition of violence or a free market of violence. Even. <laughs> so uh, he points out that while the American West was an internal and contested frontier, uh, there are other sorts of frontiers as well. Uh, neutral frontiers, for example. And he brings up Southeast Asia as an example of a neutral frontier historically between uh, the the, the major cultures of China and India. He says, quote, it was both shaped by and shaped the patterns of interaction of cores of these erstwhile separate world systems. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, and if you think to to, to East Asian cultures, and you think of uh, of the influences uh, of India and China, um, you know, intermingling, and certainly it's it's not even as simple as that because Buddhism emerges from India and then becomes a major uh, component of Chinese civilization. But still, mm-hmm. in a rough sense, you can you can see these these two major cultures coming together, and as their waters meet, uh, it's kind of like a brackish area of salt and fresh, and taking on all these uh, these diverse. Uh, and, and fascinating culture. Right. But of course, this brings up another important aspect of frontiers, which often might get overlooked, which is the the people who have less power who dwell within the frontier zone, mm-hmm. who often uh, are not treated very well by the idea of a frontier overlapping with where they live. Oh, yeah. To, to say to say the least. Uh, yeah. Hall points out that at this point in history, most indigenous groups have experienced several waves of uh, what he refers to as incorporation. 
uh, incorporation into this this new culture. And incorporation when, so that's that's sort of like when you fall under the shadow of the monopoly of violence, right? And incorporation itself uh, can lead to several different possibilities, and they range from genocide and cultureside to assimilation, transformation into a minority group. But at the same time, uh, incorporation itself is changing. So there are hmm. virtually no non-state societies left to incorporate in the world. So in other words, there are virtually no more frontiers, no new territories, no new people. Uh, repeated incorporations of diluted human cultural diversity and the very uh, frontiers that are vanishing uh, were along the zones of, uh, of ethnogenesis, of, uh, of creativity, of new ideas emerging from repeated interactions and often hostile conditions. So I referred to this a little bit talking about, uh, you know, that example of East Asian uh, cultures and civilizations. Uh-huh. Another uh, great example, I think, is when you look at Caribbean cultures, where you see this, this hostile coming together of all these different elements, you know, colonialism, slavery, uh, the eradication of indigenous peoples. All of this is, is, is horrible. And yet at the same time, out of it, you do see rich cultures emerge. Uh-huh. I mean, just... Just looking at Jamaica alone, you see all of these these fantastic ideas and models and art forms, uh, reggae music, dub music, uh, Rastafari uh, cuisine, uh, all all the all the all the attributes of any culture. Mm-hmm. But uh, with each Caribbean isle, it takes on a, a slightly different um, a different form. Now, the idea of how frontiers work changing throughout history is something I. I guess I haven't considered much before, but that is really interesting because you can think about multiple waves of this. For example, think about the first wave of human colonization of the planet. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mind boggling to think of the fact that there were times when humans were colonizing large swaths of land that no had no humans in them already. Yeah. That you you would arrive at a new place and it would be populated by plants and animals, mm-hmm. and that was what you had to compete with. And so you could think about there being a frontier of a kind there, where you're forging a true frontier into the wilderness. And when people talked about the frontier of the American West, uh, a lot of uh, a, lo- a lot of the you know the racist way to formulate it would be we're just settling a wild land, mm-hmm. but in fact the land was occupied by people. Yeah, yeah. There was time. Yeah. And there was a time when you could settle much land that was not occupied by people. And so that that was a totally different frontier uh, world system there Mm -hmm. where you're settling places that have no human competition. It's literally primeval. Then you've got this other system where where we think about sort of the ideas of colonialism, where you might have. Uh, a society with a strong central government and a lot of economic and technological power forging mm-hmm. frontiers into lands that are al- already settled by people, but who don't necessarily have strong central governments and, uh, you know, a lot of economic and technological exchange. Mm-hmm. And, and those two phases, I guess you might be able to say, have brought us mostly up to modernity. So one wonders if the idea of the frontier makes any sense moving forward now that we live in a world mostly with nation states that have central governments. Well, as Hall points out, you have, um, yeah, you have fewer and fewer external frontiers. Yeah. I mean, certainly you can make 
the the case for space, the final frontier, etc. Yeah, um, which is more like that original primeval frontier, mm-hmm. hopefully. <laughs> yeah, or uh, you know, you could also make cases for like for the 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 exploration and the establishment of underwater habitats, etc. Uh, they're various sci-fi answers, but he he points out that internal frontiers are now more common than external, especially frontiers between zones of the world system itself. Um, where uh, is where the core meets the periphery or the semi-periphery uh, along, for example, the U.S.-Mexico border is one of the examples he brings to mind. So we're constantly getting new divisions in society, new frontiers forming more and more every day. Um, so, yeah, you can just look at this, uh, this sort of fracturing. I don't want to say that in a cataclysmic sense, like the, the right. fracturing of culture basically is, is – uh, all these divisions in society continue to uh, make themselves known. You kind of have uh, individual frontiers that weave themselves uh, throughout that system. That's interesting. Uh, I guess I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to do a quick break. And when we come back, we will take a look at the frontier thesis. All right, we're back. So uh, if you listen to our live episode that was recorded at C2E2, then uh, then you know what we were talking about. We were talking about uh, the Columbian Exposition, uh, all these uh, wonderful ideas and technologies uh, coming together on a tide of cultural change. And as we were putting this together... Uh, we had some wonderful ideas that, that didn't make final cut because we're very limited for time, really. Uh-huh. Uh, and one of these great ideas was the Frontier Thesis, and that's the, the reason that we ended up putting this episode together. Yeah, so the Frontier Thesis is first articulated in the essay or lecture, The Significance of the Frontier in American History by the American historian Frederick Jackson Turner. Now, Turner was born in Wisconsin in 1861. He went to the University of Wisconsin and then to Johns Hopkins, and he became a historian. By most accounts, I should note that I've seen some discrepancy here. Most accounts say that this lecture was first delivered during the World's Fair, 1893 in Chicago, uh, to a meeting of fellow historians. But I have encountered one source at least claiming it was first delivered in 1894. I'm not sure if that's an outlier or hmm. what's going on there. But I, I believe the case is this was first delivered during the World's Fair. And the Frontier Thesis, as it came to be known we should start by saying is not accepted uncritically by the historians of today. This is not gospel truth about how to interpret Mm -hmm. American history. However, I think it is worth a look because of how influential it was on uh, American historical thinking, how, how it proved to be one of the most influential ideas in the study of American history and how it shaped how a lot of people thought about the national character of the United States up until today. It still is an influential idea, even if most historians don't just accept it uncritically and say he got everything right. I mean, in that it's kind of like the idea of manifest destiny, right? Right. Like, like nobody today is arguing that manifest destiny is a legitimate reason to to do anything. But looking back historically, we can we can look at it as uh, as part of the motivation and uh, rationale yeah. for uh, for the for the expansion for the Western expansion. Yeah. Even if manifest destiny was not a correct interpretation of how the world worked, it mm-hmm. certainly determined how people thought about right. how the world yeah. worked, uh, and it's worth understanding just for that. So he, he, let's get into Turner's thesis, uh, as he explains in this lecture. Now, Turner's main idea here is that the character of the United States, that American culture is largely determined by the presence of an expanding frontier. And that that is what gives us the 
America we know today, American democracy, American culture, what you think of as particular to the American consciousness. Now, you, you go back to colonial times, and one of the things you notice, or at least as Turner points out, is that the authorities in earlier America always always wanted to contain the impulse toward westward expansion. They like the English lords feared losing control of the colonies. I was talking to my wife Rachel about this, and she she gave the metaphor of the parent saying, "Now stay where I can see you." Yeah, <laughs> which is pretty much right as far as I can tell. The, the European uh, authorities didn't want the colonies getting out of hand, so they wanted to keep them kind of close to where their centers of access to the colonies were. Mm -hmm. And an explanation of this, Turner has this large quote from Burke that is just, uh, I just love it. So I want to read this quote. Uh, Stay with me for a second here. Burke says, quote, if you stopped your grants, and he's talking about grants of frontier land, Mm -hmm. if you stopped your grants, what would be the consequence? The people would occupy without grants. They have already so occupied in many places. You cannot station garrisons in every part of these deserts. If you drive the people from one place, they will carry on their annual tillage and remove with their flocks and herds to another. Many of the people in the back settlements are already little attached to particular situations. Already they have topped the Appalachian Mountains. From thence they behold before them an immense plain, one vast, rich, level meadow, a square of five hundred miles. Over this they would wander without a possibility of restraint. They would change their manners with their habits of life, would soon forget a government by which they were disowned, would become hordes of English Tartars, and, pouring down upon your unfortified frontiers a fierce and irresistible cavalry, become masters of your governors and your counselors, your collectors and comptrollers, and all of the slaves that adhered to them. Such would, and in no long time must, be the effect of attempting to forbid as a crime and to suppress as an evil the command and blessing of providence increase and multiply such would be the happy result of an endeavor to keep as a lair of wild beasts that earth which god by an express charter has given to the children of men so Burke has a rather convincing literary style, but I think mm-hmm. going back to our Game of Thrones analogy, one thing I, I noticed here is what what's he saying exactly in Game of Thrones terms? He's saying, be careful. If you try to tell people not to go north, they're going to turn into wildlings. Yeah. yeah. He's predicting a wildling invasion of the United <laughs> States. And of course, this raises, uh, you know, questions of how does any, how does any culture maintain itself? What is the, what is the, the skeletal system that's holding it together anyway? Yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it, it is, it is definitely a question to keep in mind that the future of, of America being one nation was not set at that time. Mm-hmm. It was not even sure, of course, that it would achieve independence, which I'm sure the English authorities did not want. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, there are a lot of ways the European colonization of the North American continent could have gone. It went one way, but it could have gone another. And some United States leaders in the European tradition, for example, President John Quincy Adams, wanted to also 
keep society pretty close to, to the shore. He wanted to use the public lands out west as a source of renewable wealth and to, to use that land to enrich and invest in compact settlements in the east. Huh. So in a sense, he was saying, hey, this is the core. Right. That's the periphery and the semi-periphery. Yes. We're not going to turn that into the core, too. We exactly. Need to yeah. Firm and established. The core is on the east, and we've got this vast periphery out there, and we want to explore exploit its natural resources to invest in the core and make make the the core very livable and very mm-hmm. wealthy and very well developed if we build more house in the backyard where will where will we pay, play croquet where will we plant our <laughs> tomatoes uh, where where will our you know uh, our mining and our, our <laughs> other uh, you know ranching resources come from now uh, religious authorities also feared loss of influence over the West Turner makes this point interestingly he says the east was of course the urban been center of orthodox preaching for whatever religious sect you belong to and to separate yourself from the center of orthodox preaching was to open yourself up to spiritual error so mm-hmm. a lot of the religious authorities were mighty concerned about people going west out of the place where the orthodox preaching would reach them who knows what kind of heresies they might develop indeed and we uh, we touch on this in the c2e2 presentation of course when we talk about the uh, the, the, the the parliament of world religions yeah. and the new religious movements many of which sprang up in the united states uh and most particularly the uh, the church of latter day saints which was very much a a new religious movement that was 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 a frontier religion yeah and very fundamentally american you mm-hmm. might say in its character. Character. Uh, even the Missouri Senator Thomas Benton gets quoted by by Turner here. And this is funny because Benton was actually well known for being pro westward expansion. He was a he was a pro frontier guy. But even he wrote that along the edge of the Rocky Mountains, quote, the western limits of the republic should be drawn and the statue of the fabled god Terminus should be raised upon its highest peak, never to be thrown down. So this is a westward expansionist, but he's saying, no, put the Roman god Terminus on the Rocky Mountains. Don't let anybody go beyond. Now, of course, Terminus was this Roman god, the god of borders and frontiers, mm-hmm. who you might have an altar to right at the border saying, the this god is of where, membranes. Ci- <laughs> yeah, this is where civilization ends. Membrane, that's great. Mm-hmm. This is where civilization ends, but it might also be where the power and influence of your gods end. Hmm. But according to Turner, the people of this mindset, the people who are saying, okay, there should be some limit to how far you can go west. We've got to draw the line somewhere and keep people to the east. These uh, authorities were not able to control people's lust for land. People did not necessarily want to live in some compact apartment in Philadelphia with nearby access to well-paved roads and clean city water pumps that were paid for by the bounty of western lands. They wanted land of their own. And so in many cases, they just claimed it. And there were a lot of leaders who were on their side. For example, Andrew Jackson, he was a westward expansionist. Mm -hmm. And through this process, Turner says, westward expansion created the idea of the frontier. It was this westward moving, continually moving boundary line that shaped the development of American culture and uniquely guided the progress of American history. Now, what, what happens along a frontier? It's, it's, 
you, you might think about, okay, we, we think of Oregon Trail, maybe pioneers yeah. moving, but w- w- how do you actually make a living if you're trying to settle westward lands away from the cities that you came from? The way Turner explains it is he thinks that frontier life represents, quote, a return to primitive conditions where you always have to recapitulate the evolution of civilization from primeval society. So because the frontier is always moving, you have to keep doing this recapitulation of the evolution of civilization over and over a little bit further and further west. So first you might have traders and hunters and trappers, and then you might have ranchers, and then you might have people setting up farmsteads, and then you might have people setting up very small basic communities to support the farmsteads, which in turn turn into cities. Then there's technological development. Finally, there's connection via uh via higher higher tech transportation like railroads and steamships and all that and each time you move west you have to keep doing this over and over again now you can imagine that if this is in fact what happens along a frontier this would certainly have some kind of effect on the culture of the people living there right yeah, yeah, because you're, it's almost like they're time traveling, right? It's yeah. It's like a civilizational time traveling, uh, um, event every time, uh, somebody moves out a little further into the frontier. Yeah, it's, it's almost perfectly what he's imagining. He's mm-hmm. like, every time you, you go another 10 miles, you go back in time, however, a hundred years or something. Um, and so he says that this also means that the cities that rise up along the moving American frontier, and eventually there are cities, are influenced less and less by the culture of Europe and more and more by the harsh necessities of surviving in the landscape. Now, he says that the frontier tends to have a unifying effect on the colonists because one thing you've got is a common hardship and what they thought of, they had this perceived threat from the native inhabitants of the continent. Uh, now, of course, you, you might say that the real threat was going probably more the other direction, but it also kept this spirit of violence, Turner says, that functioned as an unofficial military training school. Because there was, they were constantly expanding into Native American lands, and because this led to violent conflict, it sort of militarized American life. Turner says it trained people living along the frontier for war, even during peacetime. Even when there's no war going on, you've got this culture that's constantly training for violent armed conflict, and that this informs the American culture at large. Yeah, I mean, even to this day, the 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 icon of the cowboy still carries a, a fair amount of weight. Yeah, uh, even it, not just the, the the literal cowboy, of course, uh, not just one who uh, maintains a herd of cattle, uh, but like the the frontiersman uh, is is still this 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 very American concept that that resonates in our culture. I mean, think about your image of the frontiersman in your mind. Mm-hmm. Whether or not this is correct, I think this is probably mostly correct. You. Picture it. What's he holding? He's holding a rifle. Yeah, th- and he's, he might be if he's if he's less of a desert uh, type uh, uh, frontiersman. He's probably draped in furs as well. <laughs> right, they're always armed, mm-hmm. and to some degree, or at least Turner's idea is that this is correct. That it's a very it's a very gun focused, military focused, violence focused society, and that this leads to an inherent underlying 
thread of violence that's woven into the American character and still has effects when Turner was writing in the 1890s. So that's one effect. But he also says, you know, the frontier created what he would call a composite nationality of American people. It led less to the European American people being primarily just English people and said that the American character was the people along the frontier who were Scots-Irish, who were Germans, who were Pennsylvania Dutch. There were many settlers uh, of the colonial frontier who came from other populations of Europeans. And it also included these people who he refers to as redemptioners, who were freed indentured servants. Mm -hmm. Now, he also says the advance of the frontier decreased the United States' dependence on England. As settlements retreated further away from the coast, it became a lot harder for England to trade directly with them, so England had a lot less power over them. As we know today, economic relationships do equal influence and power. At the same time, he also says the frontier encouraged nationalization. Now, I think this is going to be an interesting one, especially in light of something we get to in a minute, which is his ideas about the frontier and individualism. Uh, but he says it encouraged nationalization because he, the frontier for Turner is the reason the United States is a unified country rather than just a loosely associated collection of states. The need to get goods to the pioneers led to the development of transportation infrastructure. And the expansion of civilization followed the needs of these pioneers who were living on the edge. And thus, uh, people living on the frontier tended to favor these nationalizing policies, like lots of connection via rail and transportation, but also nationalizing policies like tariffs, because that would help bring the factories and centers of production to the border instead of allowing them to be, you know, foreign and importing goods. Mm-hmm. Turner also says that the frontier mitigated against the sectionalism of the Civil War era. Now, if you're talking about influences on American culture, what informs what the American character is today, a lot of people would probably look to the Civil War, right? Because we're talking about the the, the schism of, of, the, of the nation and then the, the reunion uh, that followed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that idea of sectionalism, having people who are northern partisans and southern partisans as, a, as an important part of their national character and identity, that, that sectionalism, he says, is actually mitigated by the frontier. The frontier helped us get over that. Um, and he says it's because, number one, the frontier mainly grew from the middle region of the country, which was between the Puritan New England and the English aristocratic system of the Tidewater South. Most of the people moving west were much more likely to come from the people in the middle, like Pennsylvania, New York, that, that middle area there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he says the frontier mitigated against sectionalism also because it created this climate of continuous movement and migration and commerce back and forth. And, of course, the mobility of the population is death to localism. I like this point, which, if true, I think is also a good argument for the beneficial uh, nature of travel. Yeah. I know that's a common saying, Robert. I don't know how much you buy into that, but I think uh, people often say that the more you get away from wherever you come from as much as you're able, the more broad-minded you tend to be, the less beholden you are to, to your local customs as being the true right way. Yeah, I agree. When I look back at my own life, uh, very early on, uh, my family moved uh, to Canada, 
and uh-huh. we were in uh, Newfoundland, Canada, and my my dad was working in this hospital. So and and so not only were, were we around um, uh, the, the local Newfs, but we were also uh, around all these different international um, uh, medical professionals. So there was oh, yeah. uh, there was a, there was a, you know a, a Chinese doctor, there was a, an Indian doctor. There were all these uh, additional nationalities crammed into this this small environment. So I often look back on that and think, well, that that clearly had an impact on me early on, mm-hmm. and then subsequent travel. That I that I got to make in life only reinforce that. Robert, I, I must say, if I can pay you a compliment, you you do not seem like a person very beholden to localism. No, I do. Well, I do like local produce. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. And, and you know, when you, I feel like there's kind of the you see this a lot with chefs, like famous chefs. Yeah, they all seem to have a, a similar trajectory, right? They start off being super interested in in other uh, like nationalities, cuisines, yeah, and then they come back around and find the beauty of their their own like local family history. I've never thought about that, but mm. you know what? I think you're right. That is a very common story. Is like the the chef tries to get away from where they came up. Mm-hmm. They go to work in restaurants or culinary school somewhere else. They work in other kinds of restaurants, different kinds of cuisine than they grew up with. And then they open their own restaurant and it's what they grew up with. Yeah. So I, I find myself engaging in some of that too. You know, uh, like I, I'm fascinated by other, other cultures and other countries and, and other ways of life. But then I often will come back around and then in, in a way you end up use, using the tools that you developed to understand other people. Mm-hmm. And then you turn them inward and you try and understand the, you know, the other that is yourself, the other that is, uh, you know, the place you came from. Robert Lamb, the secret hardcore Tennessean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, yeah, yeah. I, I certainly came back around and, and, and did a lot of, uh, thinking about what it, what it means to grow up in Tennessee, what it mean, what it means to be a Tennessean. Well, to get back to the idea of sectionalism, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting and worth pointing out, of course, Turner points it out himself, is that when you think about sectionalism being this big influence in American culture, North versus South, and, and the idea of union being a frontier idea, Abraham Lincoln was a creature of the frontier. I mean, you think of Abraham Lincoln, the log cabin lawyer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so very much for Turner, that frontier mentality comes through in Lincoln and Lincoln, of course, being the great unionist, the great unifier of North and South who, who fought sectionalism more than anything else. Maybe now we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll look at a couple of the most important of Turner's ideas on the influence of the frontier on the American culture. All right, we're back. Uh, now, I don't know about you, Joe, when I, but when I think of iconic frontiersmen, I can't help but look back on uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, because both of them had a rugged, uh, individual frontiersman of a sort. Oh, in The Hobbit, there's Bjorn, the character that can change into animals, or at least can change into a bear. I right, think maybe yeah. multiple animals, but definitely into a bear. And hey, I mean, that's a great metaphor for the, the pioneer, the frontier mentality, is that you're sort of like part animal, scraping along in the wild. Yeah, and then we had Tom Bombadil in uh, Lord of the Rings, a man that's so individual and so just kind of so independently uh, uh, powerful uh-huh. that they even discuss possibly giving him the ring of power to hold on to until it's decided that, well, he'll probably lose it. 
Tom Bombadil never made it into the movies. Yeah, but I would not be surprised if Peter Jackson has a trilogy plan just for just for the Bombadil <laughs> stuff. Well, yeah, of course, individualism. And this is one of the core parts of Turner's thesis. He mm-hmm. says that the frontier created a very, very strong sense of individualism in the American character, uh, that, that life is about me. I depend on myself. I might only trust myself. And I, I want to read a long quote because I think it's great and it really gets to the core of what he's talking about. So this is what Turner has to say. As has been indicated, the frontier is productive of individualism. Complex society is precipitated by the wilderness into a kind of primitive organization based on the family. The tendency is antisocial. It produces antipathy to control, and particularly to any direct control. The tax gatherer is viewed as a representative of oppression. Professor Osgood, in an able article, has pointed out that the frontier conditions prevalent in the colonies are important factors in the explanation of the American Revolution, where individual liberty was sometimes confused with absence of all effective government. <laughs> I like that. Um, the same conditions aid in explaining the difficulty of instituting a strong government in the period of the Confederacy. The frontier individualism has from the beginning promoted democracy. And there he's talking about small d democracy, the idea of control of the government being delegated to the individual very much uh, away Mm -hmm. from any kind of aristocratic idea or influence in the government. And he also points out that it was the western frontier regions of states like New York and Virginia that pushed the most for extension of suffrage and led to greater democratic participation in those states early on. But there's another side to this. He also says that the frontier leads to contempt for education and elites. It leads to a kind of anti-intellectualism. And in one piece of evidence he he gives here, he's talking about the idea of the frontier politician. And he, he gives a statement from a representative in the Virginia Convention debates of 1830. And I gotta read this, quote, The Old Dominion has long been celebrated for producing great orators, the ablest metaphysicians in policy, men that can split hairs in all abstruse questions of political economy. But a Pennsylvania, a New York, an Ohio, or a Western Virginia statesman, though far inferior in logic, metaphysics, and rhetoric to an old Virginia statesman, has this advantage, that when he returns home, he takes off his coat and takes hold of the plow." This gives him bone and muscle, sir, and preserves his Republican principles pure and uncontaminated. <laughs> yeah, I like this. It reminds me, of course, of uh, of, of the cowboy again. Yeah. And the, the cowboy is just, um, you know, the polar opposite of, of everything you would find, say, in New York City, especially yeah. when it comes to the uh, the creation of a proper salsa, as we remember <laughs> from the commercials. Uh, but there there is an anti-establishment, anti-academic, uh, mm-hmm. anti um, anti-urban yeah. uh, sentiment that is just boiled into the idea. Yeah, uh, very very much against elites, very much against the idea of education, training, and experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's related to this idea... Well, outside of experience that you get, of course, on the frontier. Right, mm-hmm. so, ag- against the idea of relevant experience, mm-hmm. more to the idea that what really makes somebody good at anything is being authentic in character. Mm-hmm. And to be authentic in character, you need to work with your hands and be and be independent and sort of be a self-made man. 
This I I can't help but think of the propaganda photos in Russia of, of Vladimir Putin. Like right, everyone's seen it, riding the horse shirtless, right? So you think he's embodying the the frontier mentality of the United States? Um, I think a front, a, more of a universal frontier quality. Like clearly, okay. he's the, the images like that, or say, you know, him uh, wrestling with a bear. And I, I bring I bring up Vladimir Putin, but you see this in politics all over, right? Yeah. Uh, a politician going out and, uh, and rolling some, their sleeves, rolling up. the sleeves. I'm getting some yeah. photographs. May, maybe it's something more like building a house. Maybe it's hunting. Yeah. Maybe it's fishing. Maybe you know whatever it is, it's sending that that idea. That, yeah, that, yeah. I I learned with my hands. I'm good at ru- at uh, governing because I got out here and I, and I got sweaty. Right. I know. I I'm sawing some lumber. Yeah. Uh, this is why you should vote for me. Mm-hmm. Now, this mindset Turner says has its drawbacks. Turner Turner is somewhat triumphalist, you might say, about his idea here. He he's somewhat celebrating the influence of the frontier. But he also, to his credit, does acknowledge some drawbacks, uh, at least as far as he sees them. One thing is that he says the individualism and the disrespect for government leads to a laxity in government. So he says these people, they've got contempt for government. But of course, they themselves do sometimes become politicians because you got to have representatives from these areas. And when they get into government, because they have contempt for government, they treat their government offices with contempt and abuse them. And he says this has led to corruption and to the spoil system, you know, the system of like rewarding your friends and, and contributors and all that with political appointments that mm-hmm. they might not actually be the best for. Oh, yeah. So, this rings a bell somehow. Yes. Uh, so th- this is, and funny enough, this is the very spoil system which you might say got President Garfield assassinated. Now, when President Garfield was shot, he was shot by an unstable man who thought he was owed some kind of office in the federal government due to the spoil system. Mm-hmm. And he got this idea in his head and he shot President Garfield. Weirdly enough, to bring it back to the World's Columbian Exposition, the same thing happened in an almost identical event to end the 1893 Chicago World's Fair when Mayor Carter Harrison of Chicago was assassinated by an unstable office seeker who thought that he was owed some kind of appointment through the spoil system. Hmm. Kind of odd coincidence there. But also Turner points out that this leads to, in the Western lands, there being, uh, the, the frontier being a great source of paper money agitation and quote, wildcat banking. <laughs> wildcat banking. That's something that we really need a, a, like a bobcat roar as a sound effect every time uh, it is, uh, it is, it is uttered. Wildcat banking. Now, but here, here it brings us up to the present. Now, he has combined all these things. He says it leads to, you, you might say in a kind of uh, counterintuitive combination, it leads to nationalizing tendencies from a federal government point of view, but it also leads to strong individualism, uh, contempt for government, a, a sort of uh, contempt for elites and education. It leads to a sort of character of violence and militarization, a sort of simple... Simple get-or-done attitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if this is true, one thing we have to consider is that in the 1890s, the frontier was officially declared gone. The, the Turner actually starts his essay by saying, you know, in the 1880 census, uh, the country still did have what might be considered a frontier. But by the 1890 census, the uh, the 
superintendent, I believe, of the census said, you know what, there is so little unsettled land left that it no longer makes any sense to designate any section of the United States a frontier. So there really isn't a frontier anymore. Mm -hmm. So to whatever extent Turner's thesis is correct, and we can certainly talk about some ways in which it's probably not correct, but to whatever extent it is correct, what happens when the frontier is gone? Yeah, this reminds me of a, a quote from uh, Kurt Vonnegut in Cat's Cradle. He said, Americans are forever searching for love in forms it never takes, in places it can never be. It must have something to do with the vanished frontier. <laughs> that's great. Now, I think that's invoked with some irony by yeah. Vonnegut. Uh, I think Vonnegut's probably actually referring ironically to this very idea, mm -hmm. the romanticizing of the frontier and its role in forming the American character. And that is something we should definitely acknowledge is that this idea, as influential as it has been in American historical thought, there are definitely romantic elements to it. And there are there are also some elements that are that are not so nice that we should acknowledge. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the theory has had a number of critics and supporters over the years. And I think with our historical and modern lenses, we can see a few obvious flaws in it. One is merely that it was constrained by its place in time, right? He couldn't see into the future. Mm -hmm. He couldn't see how the American character would continue to develop over the next century and a quarter. But another, of course, is that this is very much a view of the development of the American character as it would be expressed by men of European heritage, basically. Yeah. So women, African-Americans, Native Americans, and, and other groups don't seem to play a big role in Turner's view of the American character, of what that character is and how it's shaped. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier the the role of, of various immigrant groups in pushing the frontier. Yeah. And certainly... Um, African African Americans as as slaves and then later as uh, as freedmen played mm -hmm. a huge role. Chinese immigrants played a, a huge role in the expansion of the railroad that pushed the frontier totally and uh, and, and helped you know eradicate it and bring in, and bring the two sides of the country together. Yeah. Um, but these these are players that are not going to be uh, core to the argument here, the core to the thesis. Right. And that and it doesn't, in fact, mean that he's necessarily wrong when he's talking about the sort of the culture of the uh, of the white male elite as mm -hmm. it ruled the country for a long time. But it does mean that it's probably not giving you a full picture of the people living in the United States of America, mm -hmm. what their character is and how it came to be that way. Um Another point that we should just stress again, though, I, I think we made this point earlier, but it's just worth reminding. He's constantly talking in the essay about the idea of free land, that there's free land as you're moving west. Um, so it's worth remembering that the land being settled by U.S. pioneers on the frontier was not, in fact, simply free land. In most cases, it was already settled or occupied by various groups of indigenous peoples. Or if people weren't living on it, they were at least depending on it for resources in some way. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, there could still be ways in which Turner's thesis does have some truth to it, even, uh, e even with these very big shortcomings. For example, it could be that the traits Turner describes do, in fact, end up manifesting themselves to some degree in Americans of all kinds, men and women, people of all different kinds of racial and ethnic heritage. And it's not hard to see how this could happen, how there, there could be certain cultural elements that would be diffused throughout the culture. If frontier attitudes can make it from the West back to the East, they can probably also make it between groups within society. Yeah, I think that that holds true. Yeah. 
Now, another thing we can look at is that uh, he's he's saying that this is the most important defining thing in, in the character of the American consciousness. It, what it's what makes American democracy what it is. Lots of historians could pick different things to mm-hmm. fill that role. Now, of course, just trying to reduce everything to one explaining event is probably going to be highly flawed right. in itself. What, you know, what about mass immigration? If if you were to ask me what defines American character more than anything. I'd probably think of, uh, I'd probably think of slavery in the Civil War. I'd think about the particular nature of the U.S. Constitution. Mm-hmm. I would think about immigration, uh, mass immigration throughout the nation's history. But the frontier might also be an important thing to list there. Yeah, and I mean, you, you even look to things like the uh, the national park system yeah. as kind of a a continuation of a of a, a frontier element. So it's like clearly the national parks are not frontiers. You can't go in there and settle parts of, of national parks, uh, or at least you can't yet. But, uh, but still, they stand there as 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 examples of uh, of of the wild that are open to everyone to visit and take part in, and uh, and and in some way that kind of scratches the itch of the the frontier spirit. The idea that well, I on, on some level we all think that we could drop everything, go off the grid, and move off into the country, uh, off into the, some imagined frontier, and we we probably maybe we can to some degree, but we can certainly go to a national park or a state park and uh, and spend the week weekend camping. Yeah, at the risk of being cheesy, I would say one of the greatest things you can do if you want to invest in travel within the United States is, of course, travel to our great cities, but also travel to our national parks. Yeah. Uh, and don't just don't just go to Yosemite. Look up the other ones. Mm-hmm. There, there are probably some nearer to you that are truly amazing national treasures. I, I hope I'm not uh, cheesing you out here. But no, 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 I, I agree that there's some wonderful national parks out there and there's some wonderful state parks. But I guess here we get to the final question. Robert, I, I wonder what you think. Do you think there's anything to what Turner's saying? Do you think that the frontier is this really important influence on what makes the United States what it is on our national character? Or or do you think Turner was wrong? Yeah, I think there's something to it. But I also wonder, like, how much of that is frontierism? How much of that is just the, the immigrant spirit, the mm-hmm. idea that whatever I was somewhere else, whatever the limitations on who I could be, or whatever those limitations were, I can come here and I can I can redefine who I am and I can I can earn myself a better place. Yeah. Now, I wonder when I've been thinking about it, if the the frontier thesis is not necessarily a good explanation of the American character as a whole, but it is a very good explanation of certain strains of thinking and subcultures within mm-hmm. the American culture. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, so it kind of comes back to, like we've said with this and like we said with uh, the world systems theory, is that any time you try and come up with a definite answer and a definite model for the, the movements of history, even if it's just U.S. history, you're going to run into to some problems. But broadly speaking or or strategically employed, it does it, it does seem to have some truth in it. Yeah. What do you think about the idea of new frontiers after the physical land frontier went away? Well, the other uh, certainly a, a strong argument to me made for for the the digital frontier. Yeah. Uh, for the, 
in the same way that we were talking about, like find, scratching the itch of frontierism in national parks. Yeah, I think at least for a while you could do that with the digital realm, and I guess you still scientific can. advancement. This scientific is often advancement. cited yeah. as a as a new frontier. You like you're forging new ground, and the benefit of scientific advancement as a frontier is you don't have to literally displace real people. Right. Right. And uh, and I think science fiction plays into that area as well, like yeah. sci-fi. Imaginary frontiers. Yeah, it's kind of the imaginary frontier fed by the scientific frontier. Of course, space is another one people often talk about. Mm-hmm. The final frontier, one might say. That's true, yeah. Until we d- discover interdimensional travel. Yeah, and certainly when uh, science fiction tries to imagine uh, interplanetary frontiers, we we draw back on our experience with often the, the American frontier. If yeah. It's, uh, if it's, it's certainly if it's an American science fiction author. Yeah, if you look at a lot of that uh, mid-century science fiction, a lot of times the uh, the starship captain is very colonial mm-hmm. or is a cowboy. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Kirk was kind of a cowboy, wasn't he? Kind of. Yeah. All right, Robert, you got anything else? Let's see. We, we mentioned Kirk. We mentioned Tom Bombadil. Uh, so I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. I think we fully explained it. All right. So, hey, uh, if you missed that C2E2 episode, go back and listen to it uh, because it, it ties in directly with a lot of with the spirit of what we're talking about here. And, uh, hey, in the meantime, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find uh, The Mothership. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes ever. You'll find blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, etc. And, of course, you can find the podcast virtually anywhere you get your podcast these days. And, of course, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can email us, as always, at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 